Here we are in the second lesson in uh, the book of Hebrews, if I have my day right. <laughs> uh, so, I'm wrong. It's First Peter. See, I knew it. Tomorrow is Hebrews. <laughs> so, uh, uh, we're doing the second lesson in First Peter. So, if you have your uh, Bible or your electronic device, turn to First Peter chapter 1. Uh, verse 13, and uh, we talked about the author and when it was written and the occasion and uh, why he wrote it. Basically, the, the uh, church was going, getting ready to go through some intense persecution. Nero had, most people think he burned Rome himself but because he, he wanted to rebuild it. Uh, and he blamed it, though. He had to have a whipping boy, so he blamed it on the Christians there in Rome. And so in 64 AD, the, um, the intense persecution against Christians began by the Roman Empire. So Nero blamed the Christians for the fire in Rome, and uh, from that time on, Rome was persecuted and got no respect, much like our pal Rodney. <laughs> I think that was actually from the old Ed Sullivan show, if I've, if I've got it right. Isn't that amazing? The Ed Sullivan show. Some of you people are so young, you don't remember, even remember it, right? All right. All right, so in 1 Peter, uh, considering last week, we were told last week of all the blessings that are ours in Christ. Uh, no gift is greater than God's grace. Uh, and when you think about it, totally for, forgiven, total forgiveness, peace with God, uh, hope in the promises of the future, the resurrection, uh, the second coming of Christ, eternal glory, salvation, inheritance in heaven is reserved for us. I mean, how can you beat that? Based on that, nothing should demand a greater response from us. And that's what today's lesson is about. Last uh, last week's lesson was, you could say, was setting the stage for everything that Jesus has done for us. And this week, he's basically saying, all right, here's the application. Based on what Christ has done for you, your response should be uh, rapid and strong. You should come to him and live holy lives, and you should live uh, sober and on and on. So uh, he says today... I think. There we go. Uh, live with hope. Uh, as we talked about last week, hope is expecting and anticipating what God has promised to do in the future. So it's related to faith, but it's different because when you live by faith, it's today. We live by faith every day. We live uh, by faith, you know, and take the next step, you might say. But hope, biblical hope, is not some pipe dream where you go uh, buy a lottery ticket and hope you win. No, biblical hope is you fully expect it and you live like you expect it, uh, of course. And so uh, faith is trusting God now. Hope is expecting and anticipating what God's promised to do in the future, right? And so also 
was told to us last week was the inheritance uh, that God has promised us. And what is that, of course? Uh, it's the spiritual reality of our resurrection unto eternal life in heaven where we will rule with Christ in the kingdom of God. So not only uh, has God, uh, has Jesus gone before us to, replay, to prepare a place for us in heaven, he's also got a place for us to serve him and to rule over the creation. You know, our original purpose, all the way back to Genesis 1 creation account, was to serve God and glorify him. And you read in the account, it says, uh, I am making man in my image, meaning with, uh, the, with intelligence and decision-making ability and communication skills and all the other things that go with it. And I want you to multiply on the earth, subdue it, and rule over my creation for me. That's what God said. So that was the original plan for the human race, to serve God, glorify Him by ruling over His creation. And in the kingdom of God after the resurrection, that's what we're going to do. A lot of people think you're going to be floating around in heaven with a harp or some cloud or something with a harp. No. You're going to be active. It's going to be exciting. And uh, you're going to be back where you were supposed to be before the original sin that ruined everything, that blew us out of the tub and set us on this course for the world to be as messed up as we know it is today. Uh, but he's going to restore all things at that time and restore us based on what Jesus has done. Uh, he's going to restore us in the kingdom to our previous purpose and meaning and uh, so that's our inheritance in heaven that we can look forward to. As bad as things get here on earth, we can know that God's going to fix it in the future. Okay? So, if you look at verse 13, you'll see he says, uh, and this is kind of a shift again from uh, a truth to application, what we should do based on what God's done for us. Uh, from explaining and describing the salvation that's ours to commanding those uh, who have received it, who's benefit from it, been blessed by it, uh, to get busy. And the three words that he uses, three big issues that he covers there in verse 13 for us to do, the action that we should have, read it. It says, therefore, gird your minds for action. That's an interesting term. And I think he's coming from the position of uh, knowing exactly what a Roman soldier looks like. You know, uh, gird your loins is what they did. And that was a common term then. It is now today. Everybody uses that, right? You say that. To, no? <laughs> but you've heard it before. And what it was, a soldier would wear the long tunic, but uh, the first thing he'd do when they were getting ready to go into battle would be to pull it up. Because when you think about it, what's the quickest way to lose a fight? To get kicked in the groin. See? What? Yeah. So you have to gird your loin. It's like an athlete wearing a jockey strap, you know, to protect himself. They would pull it up, which would give them more freedom to run and to move. But at the same time, uh, they could also wrap it around there to protect uh, that area from any injury, okay? Uh, and then you can see the guy 
once he's all girded up down here on number six, you can see he's ready to go, man. <laughs> and, uh, and that's what he's saying. It's an image of getting ready, of being ready uh, to do something, ready for action, right? Uh, and so gird your minds. And so you prepare your minds. You've got to have the right mindset. The mindset that he talked about in verse 1 through 12. The mindset is that look at the, everything I'm a beneficiary of. Everything that Christ has done for me is amazing. And so you have that mindset and you also have the hope mindset that you're looking forward into the future of what God has promised you. And what, what has he promised, by the way? Uh, in some of the verses like Revelation 1 through 7, he, we're told, Behold, Jesus is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. So when Jesus comes back in the second coming, a lot of people look at these uh, charlatans today that claim to be the Messiah or the Christ. And you go, well, how, do we, how will we know? And uh, Jesus made it clear both in uh, Matthew 24 and also in the book of Revelation that it's going to be such an, a glorious event. All of the atmosphere above wherever you are in the world is going to be full of the glory of God and all of His angels coming with Him. No one's going to say, gosh, I wonder if that's it. Everybody will know for certain that's it. That's it. Uh, and so, because we know that that's coming, uh, we can rest assured in that promise that Jesus is coming back. And then what did Jesus tell His apostles at the Last Supper? John 14, 3, they said, don't go. He said, I got to go. Believe me, you want me to go. Because if I go, I will come again and receive you to Myself. And I'm going now to prepare a place for you in heaven. And that's the promise of Christ to everyone who believes in Him. That we will have a place uh, in, in the kingdom of God, in heaven. Uh, we, we will be with Christ as well. And when the disciples uh, in Acts chapter 1 verse 11 saw Jesus ascend to heaven in the clouds, an angel appeared to them and said, This Jesus who has been taken up into heaven will come back in just the same way. He went up there, he's coming back as well. Uh, and then, of course, that's when all the promises he's, he's made will be fulfilled about our resurrection, which I'm looking forward to. I don't know about you guys. You probably all have perfect bodies, you know, and uh, no issues at all, at all. But not me. <laughs> I am a human train wreck. And so I am looking forward to that resurrection, right? And so these promises that have been given to us, uh, we live expectantly like that's coming and that uh, we have that hope in our mind. And then he also says in verse 13, keep sober. Uh, and of course, sober is, is uh, the concept there is have control of yourself. What happens when you get drunk or you're on drugs or whatever is you lose control, right? Uh, and he's saying keep sober, uh, using that image of saying you need to have self-control. 
in all that you do. So you live that expectant life and hope, and you have control over yourself. You're sober-minded. Fix your hope completely. So all your hope, all your forward-thinking thoughts are fixed completely on the grace, the free gift of God that's uh, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be brought to you, the revelation is the revealing of Christ when he comes back in his glorious state. He came the first time as a suffering servant. He's coming back as a glorious king, right? So fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so uh, we're, we're looking forward expectantly and we have our mind set as a, a sober person who's completely controlled and we're excited about the grace, about the free gift of God that's, that will be ours at that time. Uh, and I told you last week that the word salvation, soter, is used three ways in the uh, New Testament Greek. The first one is being saved from the penalty of sin. So now you're forgiven. The second way is being saved from the presence of sin. So even though you're forgiven, there's still all these temptations and, and all these desires that are in me. And that second salvation is in the, the Holy Spirit's work within you to keep you, to convict you, and to keep you from sinning. And then, of course, the third and final uh, salvation is when you're glorified, you're resurrected. So you're actually removed from the presence of sin, right? Uh, and so that's what he's talking about here. That's what you're looking forward to. Uh, and again, if you're like me, you're going, man, I can't wait to get released from this body and all of its passions and desires and temptations, you know, that are coming at us constantly. Um, these guys over here are looking like little choir boys. I know those guys. I know them. They need this badly. <laughs> All right, so live, verse 14, live as obedient children. So consider yourself obedient children, obeying the God who saved you, and do not be conformed to what? Your former lusts. The old person, the Bible looks at uh, those of us who are saved, who receive Jesus as their Savior, as new people. The old people was before Christ, and you lived basically by your desires. You know, whatever you thought would make you uh, important, would make you loved, would make you be fulfilled, that's how you lived, based on the desires that were in your flesh. But now in Christ, you have different direction. The new person is obedient to the God who saved us. And so that's what he's talking about. No longer be conformed to the former lust. You know, the insatiable cravings, the selfish yearnings, the uncontrolled passion, the compulsive ambition, the self-indulgence. I could go on all day. Somebody's getting ready to say, stop! All right. So, uh, the former lust, uh, all the stuff that used to dictate our life when you were like in a college fraternity. No, it's just, 
that's, that's just me, I guess. But I mean, that's how you lived. That's, what the, that's the way the world lives. Is be, their, their life and what they do, where they go, who they're with is dictated by their desires, their lust. So instead, conform to the positive, positive standard of holiness of the nature of God. And so he says, you, verse 15, in contrast to that, you be like the Holy One, God Himself, who called you, who called you. God was somehow involved in you coming to Christ. Uh, we don't know exactly how, but He changed your heart. He prepared you in some way to come. Uh, and so be like Him, live like Him, be obedient to Him. Uh, and as He says, be holy yourselves as He is holy. Uh, in all of your behavior. And he quotes from all through the book of Leviticus uh, when Moses was giving the law. He, he said over and over and over, be holy because God is holy. He's the one that not only created you, but saves you and rules over you. So be like him. Not like anybody that's in this world, but be like Him because of who He is. And He is your Lord, right? So have the same character as the God you serve is your goal, right? And when you think about, you know, living holy lives, uh, the world's view of, uh, of this is mission impossible. <laughs> you know, it's just not going to happen for most people. Uh, but the fact is, uh, it, it is possible now, one of the things that Jesus did, and he told his disciples, it's going to be your benefit that I leave. They said, don't leave. He said, it's going to be your, your benefit. Not only am I going to go prepare a place for you, but even now, I'm going to send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. And he will be indwelled by the Spirit, and the Spirit of God will lead you, guide you, teach you, convict you. So um, that's what we're talking about here. God has uh, aided you in this process of uh, changing you from the inside out. It's a life-changing experience. Uh, some people just call it spiritual growth. Uh, you can call it whatever you want. It involves both our volition and the leading of the Holy Spirit as well. Uh, so, uh, what else have we got behind this one? Yeah. So, the, the world says... Well, I'm a good person. What do they mean by that? I don't cause any trouble. I obey the law. And why do they do that, basically? Because they believe in social order. Uh, they want to please people. And, you know, they want to be popular. And they know it's the best way to live. And they've been brought up this way, all these kind of reasons. But the author of the Bible is saying, no, you be holy because God is holy. And that's what motivates us. God has done all these things for us, blessed us in all these ways, and He expects us to follow Him and be holy because He is holy. Right? Uh, and so that's the idea. And as I said, with the Holy Spirit, the how is there. We must cooperate with Him, the leading of the Spirit, so He can operate on us. You follow that? So it's our volition to cooperate, to yield to the direction of the Spirit. And uh, as we do, 
He will operate on us, on our heart, our inner person. He will change us from the inside out, right? Uh, and I can tell you that uh, from my own experience and from also uh, knowing all of you that I know real well, that that has happened. Your, your inner person has changed. You're a different person because of what Christ has done. It's a process, and you're not as good as you should be, but uh, God is still at work. Uh, and so what we're called to do is cooperate so that he can operate on us, so to speak, right? Uh, and then he's going to go on to say, verse 17, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And so part of this uh, living by faith and living holy lives underneath God's authority involves a certain amount of what the Bible calls fear. Now that bothers a lot of people. You know, maybe their parents were a little rough on them or they went to a church that said, you're going to hell, you know. And so that bothers them to hear that the idea of the fear. But really, um, most of the time when the Bible talks about fear, it's talking about respect, awe, reverence. And so you see God as who he really is and not like the world sees him. You know how the world sees him. Uh, he's their good buddy. He, God's, a, God's my good buddy. And every time I need him, he's there for me. Or Santa Claus. You know, I need these things, and so I pray all this stuff I need, and he, he gives it. Or uh, maybe a genie in a bottle, you know. I get three wishes or whatever. I mean, that's the way the world thinks, that it's all about me, right? And that's what God's there for. It's all about me and what I want and what I need. And the truth is, it's just the opposite. We are here to serve and glorify him, to obey him, see, and that is how we are fulfilled. Uh, trying to fulfill yourself by yourself, on your own, away from God, is causing all the frustration in the world. You look around the world and you go, God, what is wrong with this messed up world? That's it. They were created to serve and glorify God. That's their purpose and their meaning. But they're doing something else. Uh, you've heard me use the illustration of, of how uh, frustrating this is. The guy is driving to the golf course. He gets a flat tire. He gets out, pulls out a golf club, tries to change his tire. He's cursing and yelling and screaming. He can't get it changed. He goes to the golf course and he tees off with a tire tool. <laughs> he whiffs it. Again, the cursing and the yelling and the screaming and the frustration. What, is, what happened? What's the problem with this guy? They were not made for that purpose. He's using each of those for a purpose they were not made for. And that's the problem with the human race. That's the problem with the human race. We were made for the purpose of serving and glorifying God, not ourselves. And yet we live like it's all about me, right? And so... Uh, the author is saying, fear God. Have 
an honor for God, reverence for God, and awe and a respect for God. See? Live that way. As if He's God and I'm not. We're not. Right? Uh, the author of uh, Proverbs says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. And again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Okay? So, he goes on to say, uh, in verse uh, 17, that God will be the judge. Here's another motivation to serve Him and to live holy lives. Because the judgment day is coming. If you address this Father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. And so you're going to give an account of everything you did. If you're not a believer and you're going to stand before your God by yourself and try to give an account of you, that's going to be funny, isn't it? All these jokers standing before God saying, I'm a good guy. I lived a great life. And God, when he stops laughing, you know, saying, really? What about, and goes over all the, all the bad stuff and they go, I was hoping you'd overlook that. You know, uh, but even believers will have a judgment day and you say, well, I thought we were forgiven in Christ. We, we are, but God is still going to have a judgment seat of Christ, it's called, in 2 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 3, he says, let me tell you what it's like. It's like uh, Jesus is our foundation of everyone who believes. He's your foundation. He uses the, 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 the image of building something on it. So you've got this awesome foundation. This awesome foundation is good enough for a skyscraper a thousand stories tall. And the question is, what are you going to build on it? That's what you've been given. Are you going to build a shack? Or are you going to build something better? And the judgment day will be about what you built uh, from the day you receive Christ as your Savior until the judgment day, right? And so he uses the image of uh, there's a fire in that building that you built. If it was made out of wood, hay, and stubble, it'll all be burned up. But if it was built on uh, precious gems and gold and silver, you know, that doesn't burn up, then it will survive and you will be rewarded. And, but then he goes on to say, but all of you will be saved. Okay? So your sins are forgiven. That's it. But from what this judgment will be is what happens after that. Uh, how well you serve him, what you accomplish for him, how you live your life from that time on. And so even we as believers have a strong reason to live holy lives now based on the coming judgment. And then verse 18, we also know uh, that we were redeemed. Now the word redeemed is very interesting and it literally means to, to be bought back. And it becomes, it was a key word in the Roman Empire. In the first century Roman Empire, where and when this was written, uh, half the empire were slaves. Half the people in the empire were slaves. Uh, and they became slaves through war and battle 
or uh, as indentured servant. They owed money they couldn't pay, so they had to work as an indentured servant, uh, stuff like that. Uh, You could actually, and people did this all the time, they sold their children into slavery because they knew uh, that slaves uh, would get an education or learn a trade. Uh, And the word redemption was everybody was allowed to be bought out. So you could buy out someone from slavery, and that was the redemption. You redeemed them and make them free. And that's the image of the New Testament authors. You were redeemed. Christ has set you free from sin, from the penalty of sin. You were under that, and now you've been set free. You were redeemed. You were bought by the precious blood of Christ. You were bought. So that's a hefty price to pay, right? Uh, And so... He goes, in verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things. So in the Roman Empire, they were redeemed with gold and silver. Stuff that doesn't last, is gone. Anybody got some coins from the uh, first century Roman? If you do, they don't look too good. I've seen some, you know, online and stuff, and they're just all gnarled up, and they've been kind of shaved off and everything. Worn out. That's what he means. It's perishable. This doesn't last. There's nothing lasting about it. But what you've been redeemed by is imperishable. It's eternal. It's forever. It's all-powerful. So you've been redeemed, verse 19, with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless the blood of Christ. So the precious blood of Jesus that's, it's, has infinite value is the idea there. That price that was paid has infinite value. It's the most expensive thing that there ever was is the blood of Christ. Right? So consider that it cost more to redeem you than it did to make you. What did it take to make you? God's spoken word. Remember that the first man's name was Adam? You know, in Hebrew, what the, where that comes from, the word Adama, and that means dirt. So God took the dirt, you know, like clay, and formed it into a person and then breathed life into him. Right? Uh, but, to buy us back, to redeem us, that required the blood of God's Son. Now that is, is a valuable thing. That is a high price to pay. And when we realize that we were redeemed by that, uh, it's, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? That's a high price. God did an incredible thing, paid an incredible price something that has infinite value to buy us back out of slavery to sin. So we were bought with precious blood as of a lamb. That's the image of the Passover lamb. You know, if you remember back in Exodus when uh, the tenth plague was the angel of death came through Egypt 
And he told all the people, all the Jews, all the Hebrews, put the blood of an innocent lamb, an unblemished lamb, on your doorpost and the angel of death will pass over you and you won't perish. And all the Egyptians who didn't do that, they perished. Their firstborn was perished. Okay? And so that's the image he's saying here. A lamb unblemished, the perfect sinless lamb and spotless. And then he identifies what he's talking about. That is the blood of Christ. That's the precious blood. That's the sin sacrifice for us is the blood of Christ. And God knew that he was going to do, it, do that. He always expected, he always had the plan of buying us back in that way. Okay? So, in verse 20 he says, For he was foreknown, Jesus was foreknown by God, that he was going to come into the world, the incarnation. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. So Jesus pre-existed the creation, and God's plan to save us uh, pre-existed the creation. Okay? Uh, the church is the beneficiary, or believers are the beneficiary of that. In verse 21, who through him, we who are saved, through Christ are believers in God. We're saved. Uh, and God raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And so he accomplished all this uh, and he paid the ultimate price, which is the precious blood of Christ. Okay? Um, so it's kind of mind-blowing what God has done and it should move us, motivate us uh, to live the holy lives that he was talking about before. And our faith and our hope, both the way we live now and our perspective about the future, our hope, both of those are in God. Uh, and in verse 22, uh, the expectation, uh, the response that we should give each other or the other people in the church, our interpersonal relationships, how should we respond there? Uh, he's already gone over how we should respond to God, but how should we respond to people? Since you have an obedience to the truth, since you're going to obey God, and, and you've had uh, your souls purified, since, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. The brethren is the church, the people, uh, your fellow believers. You have a special relationship with fellow believers in Christ. Uh, you have great relationships in your family and your friends and your uh, recreational partners, your golf buddies or whatever, but you have a more special relationship with people in the church, fellow believers he's talking about. Uh, and that is that we love them unconditionally. See? We love them unconditionally. Uh, not because they deserve it, but because uh, that's the kind of love that God has given us. So he says, a sincere love of the brethren fervently. That's a great word to use. Fervently love one another from the heart. Not just some, hey, uh, love you, brother, and you, boom, you're gone. No, it requires action 
and, and you take care of people, and uh, it's meaningful. Okay? Uh, and you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So we now, the new person that's alive in us, the Holy Spirit in us, the new saved person, is forever. It's, we are now imperishable. Whereas before, we were going to die. Now we have no fear of death. We're imperishable. Uh, I, was, I was looking at a, a, a true uh, a story about Dolly Parton. And it had a quote from her, and she was talking about how the body's, you know, kind of changing. Anybody else aging here? Anybody? Just me. Okay. Yeah, sure. Dolly Parton said, somebody asked her, how do you look so young? You know, I think she's 125 or something. Yeah. And Dolly Parton says, well, this is what happens. If I see something sagging, bagging, and dragging, I'm going to nip it. Rip it, suck it, and tuck it. <laughs> she said, why should I look like an old barnyard dog? And she says, and by the way, it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. <laughs> Isn't that good? Yeah. And so, uh, as a result of being uh, spiritually alive, we love those uh, other people who are also in God's fam spiritual family with a special love, right? Because they have also experienced the blessings that God has given us. They've also been redeemed. Uh, their life is also changing from the inside out. And uh, he has... Uh, save them as well. And so we have this great common bond between us. All right? Uh, let me close with uh, a story about hope and how important that is to the Christian. You know, to have a spiritual hope, uh, to believe the promises of God. Every book in the New Testament, I think, except for Philemon, uh, talks about the second coming. I mean, it's just a fact that they take for granted uh, and assume that their audience believes in it. Uh, this guy, an incredible book, uh, he was a prisoner in World War II, a concentration camp of the Nazis, uh, and he tells the story that he had a close friend who had a dream. This is in uh, early 1945. His friend had a dream that they would be liberated on March 30th. He had this dream, and that kept him alive. He said, I know we're going to be liberated on March 30 if we can just make it till then. And sure enough, he made it till then. On March 29th, he started to become ill. But he says, I'm going to make it. And on March 30th, he got sick. No liberation yet. March 31st, he died. He just gave up. They were liberated one week later. And Victor Frankl survived it. Um, but Victor says, when his friend's mind gave up hope, so did his body. And so we read in today's lesson, prepare your minds. Prepare your minds. Gird your minds for action. Get your mindset, your thinking correct. Know what the future holds and live accordingly to it. Have that... 
spiritual mindset of what Jesus has promised and what's going to happen in the future. So we let the hope of verse, verse uh, 1 through 12 in chapter 1, all those blessings, we let that fill our mind and we look forward in hope to what is going to happen uh, when Christ comes back. And that's the way we live. That's the way we overcome. That's the way we persevere. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us with your word and how powerful it is. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for everything that Peter has written here. It's inspired and it's meaningful and it's life-changing and we praise you for it. And I pray that your spirit who's alive within us would move us to have uh, that kind of action that's called for because of everything that God's done for us. That we would live holy lives, uh, be sober-minded, and uh, live for you, Lord, uh, as we go forward. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.